0: on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. And the script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Hear international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Alright, so now we go to Egypt, life after life. Many people have been to Egypt. I think last time we had the program last week, quite a number of you have been to Egypt. You know, Egypt seemed to be obsessed with eternity. When you stop and think about it or if you go to Egypt, they seem to have a th- real passion about living forever. In fact, there were certain ingredients that were vital for the Egyptians for their understanding or their concept of life after death. For example, you needed a body... For the soul's return, so the soul came backwards and forwards, so you needed a body, and that's one of the reasons why, as time went on, the Egyptians developed the art of mummification. By the way, at first they would bury the body in the hot, dry sands of Egypt, and Perfectly preserved the body without mummification. You can see one in the British Museum. Beautifully preserved just by burying in the hot, dry sands there in Egypt. But as time went on, they wanted more elaborate burials, and so they had to develop this process. Another ingredient for eternity was you needed a tomb. The reason for the tomb was to protect the body from the wild hyenas and jackals and dogs and so on. So you needed a tomb. And so the Egyptians developed, of course, elaborate burials for their pharaohs and uh, we get into pyramid building by the way I've noticed that some people wonder did the Egyptians really build the pyramids. In a recent edition of our archaeological diggings magazine, we talked about the fact that there was no question that humans built the pyramids. They were not built by people from Mars or some other place because they've left behind with them many things that indicate that humans did the building. For example, you can go down to Luxor, sorry, to Aswan, and you can see this unfinished obelisk in the middle of the screen here. That's was left in the in the uh, granite quarry not finished off, and you can see how they actually were able to get these things out of the ground. They used hot and cold sorry I should say cold they they uh, drilled holes put um, water in them with with um, with uh, cloth and so on, and it would expand and help the rocks to crack. Then, of course, we can go to Luxor and we come to the Karnak Temple and you can see they've left a ramp, an earth mud ramp that they took stones up and so on to get them up onto a higher level. So they used the inclined plane as well. Not only that, you can see this drawing here from one of the great... uh, uh inscriptions of the Egyptians and people wondered what this guy's doing here. They thought it was some pouring some sort of a of a, maybe some ceremonial offering out or something, but they now know what that was. You know why? They're dragging this huge big statue here, and these are all the people pulling on the ropes you see. The ropes and this water on the sand was like a lubricant. In fact, uh, just recently at one of the universities, in, I think it was in northern Europe there, they did some experiments to show very clearly that this made, made things very easy to move across the sand with these massive objects. So there's no question that humans were involved with the building of the pyramids, not the people from Mars or someplace. Now, another ingredient for eternity was the heart. You needed the heart for the judgment. So the heart was put back in the body after it had been mummified so that in the judgment process your heart would be weighed against the feather of truth, mayet. You will notice here a scene from the book of the dead and here is the feather of truth, mayet, and your heart is put here on this side of the pan and Anubis is weighing in the judgment scene. In uh, This is in from the books of the dead. Another ingredient was your name must be associated with your with your burial because otherwise the soul might come back to Tom, Dick or Harry instead of the right place sort of thing. So for the pharaohs, of course, their cartouche was prominent somewhere, their cartouche, their signature, if you like, their name. And uh, so the cartouche was on the tomb of Tutankhamen's tomb, for example. Uh, The idea the soul would know where to come back and so on. Give identity for the afterlife. We could put it that way. Then you needed things to enjoy in the afterlife. You want to have a good time in the afterlife. I noticed that they have these little models as well. They were buried with people uh, of things they were planning to do in the afterlife. One of them was interesting. They were making beer, and the drink was called Boozer. I guess that would fit well for all the Aussies, wouldn't it? You know. But they had these little models, and of course, if you were a pharaoh, you could bury the real thing for the afterlife. And so many practices the Egyptians had. And of course these treasures of Tutankhamun that we saw last week so that he could enjoy the afterlife. Now of course the Egyptians were not the only ones who went to elaborate, um, uh, efforts for the afterlife. You can visit Xi'an in China to see the Emperor Qin Huang's tomb and you will notice these are the famous terracotta warriors where he had about 800 of these terracotta warriors. He planned to do some fighting in the next life and so on. Horsemen on chariots and so on. Amazing to see this place in Xi'an. You can go to Mesopotamia and see here in Ur in Iraq today where the archaeologist Sir Leonard Woolley discovered the death pits of Ur. Where the living were buried with the dead for the afterlife. And, uh, for example, in this, one of the tombs, they found these crushed skulls of the soldiers who were going to, who were guarding the tomb. They were buried in the tomb with the king and so on. And with one of the queens, Queen Puabi, we find that some of the attendants were buried with her, even with their jewelry still on their head. And you can see in the center that the skull has been crushed, but the jewelry is still on the head of this woman from way, way back for the afterlife so that they could proceed into the next life, you see. Now, why all this trouble when you think about it? How come that different cultures around the world, men, women, different religions, all are seeming to look for an afterlife? and went to elaborate processes in some places. Even today, there are some people that uh, have their bodies frozen so that when someone comes up with the idea of how to get life going again, they might continue on. We seem to want to go on for eternity. There's a good reason as far as the biblical prophets were concerned. Pass me my Bible, please, Bob. I left it on the seat there. Thanks, man. And that was this. He, God, has put eternity in their hearts. There's something about, for each one of us, almost all of us, we want to go on after death. God has put eternity in our hearts. We want to live forever. We want to be forever young in actual fact. It's not just the young people. You know, many people today, you go to Hollywood and see what the Hollywood people are doing. Body tucks here, there and ever. They still want to keep looking young even though they're getting old. We want to go on. We want, God has put eternity, so to speak, in our hearts. We want to live forever. Now, how does that take place according to this incredible book that we've seen? It gives us the, the the way to eternity. I want to turn with you to the book of Revelation in just a moment. But before we go there, I want us to think about the Egyptian belief in life after death. It was very fragile. What about the mummies? The mummies are missing. They've been taken from their tombs now. They're disassociated from their cartouches and so on. They've been robbed by the tomb robbers. Very fragile when you start to think about it. What about the treasures and the things? Someone else has got them. They're in some other museum today. What about those who are supposed to be offering bring the food offerings and so on. You see, it was a very fragile belief. It was very dependent on the living for your life beyond death in actual fact. Now, in the book of Revelation, we go to the center of the book, And we see the way to live forever as John portrays it in the book of Revelation. I want you to notice he sees the final events of planet Earth in the center part of the book of Revelation. And then John sees the final messages that are given to planet Earth today. He notices three angels fly out across the midnight heavens in his book. And the first angel has a message for the world. Notice what the first angel says. John says, then I saw another angel. He was flying in the midst of heaven. He's in a hurry. He's not just an angel. He's a flying, meaning he's He's urgent. In an urgent mission, he has the everlasting gospel to proclaim or to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people, saying with a loud voice. He wants the planet to hear this message, in other words now. It's called in Greek a megaphone voice, meaning where we get megaphone from. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now notice why the urgency. Why is this angel in a hurry? Why is he shouting out his message to the whole world in a loud voice? Why is he flying in the midst of heaven very prominently? For a very good reason. Right in the center of this message it says these words, The hour of his judgment has come. In other words, John is seeing the last empire is about to appear. This is no time to play around. We're on the verge of eternity he's seeing in his book of Revelation. That's why there's an urgency. The last empire is about to appear. That empire where there'll be no more tears, where there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sorrow and no more death. In other words, if there's no more death, eternity is about to begin. This is why the angel is in a hurry across the planet today. Now, how can we be in the last empire? We actually read the words. It said it right in the middle of John's message. The everlasting gospel, the angel who flies in a hurry, he has the everlasting gospel. Now, the gospel means good news. The Greek word gospel means good news. It's the way, the good news of the way to eternity. You will notice what the Bible says here. Paul is writing, he says to his friend Timothy, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, he's beaten it, and he's brought life and immortality, that means eternal living, to light, and it comes through the gospel. So it's the gospel that brings how to have eternity, according to Paul and the Bible. Now, first of all, the good news is good news for all people. You will notice what the angel does. He goes to every place on the planet. This is not just for the Jews. This is not just for the Aussies. This is not just for the Americans. This is for the world. He says, he goes and he preaches to those who dwell on the earth in yellow on the last line to every nation, every tribe, tongue and people God is a global lover he has no favorites we are all his children and God wants all of us to have eternity Peter put it this way he was a follower of Jesus and he wrote these words the Lord is not willing that any should perish but that all should have eternal life in other words Now, I want you to think of that just for a minute. He doesn't want any to perish. We've seen some pretty bad people on planet Earth, but even those, God would love them to have eternity. I want you to come with me to Assyria for a moment. We could well call these people the terrorists of the ancient world. They ruled the ancient world from about 930 BC to about 600 BC. These were people who were pretty radical. For example, you can see them in the British Museum fighting the Israelites at the Battle of Lachish. Here they are when the battle is over. The Assyrian soldiers here are flaying the Israelites, which means they are skinning them while they are still alive. Not only this, they impaled their victims on stakes. You see them here being pulled down on these sticks. What a terrible way to die. And then there are many scenes that the The Assyrians have left us a decapitation. They toss human heads like they were footballs on in the grand final or something. And you can see these heads piled up in piles. We just had an article on the Assyrians recently in our diggings magazine, and it's incredible and to think that God even loved those people, and that's why he sent a man who went inside a fish's belly. You've heard the story of Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish, right? Where did he go? God sent him to Nineveh. God said that great city Nineveh in which there are a whole lot of ignorant people who do not understand I care about them, and I want them to have eternal life. Now, we can't understand such love. But we would if it was our child who was in a difficult situation. If the Assyrians were our children, I don't care who the parent is, they still love their kids even when they're pretty bad. Well, God is no less. In fact, he's far more a lover than we as human parents are. And so he sent Jonah to Nineveh of all places to warn them of the coming destruction. And fortunately, they turned, they repented. Now, love found a way to bring eternal life. The wages of sin is death, we read a while ago in our first section. But God found a way to bring eternal life to every one of us. Yet the wages of sin is death. And that brings us now to the second thing about the gospel. It's called in the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's just see. I'm having a bit of trouble forwarding that on. There we go. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what the Bible says. In this, the love of God was manifested or revealed toward us. He says that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the way to eternity. We saw his Emmanuel meaning God with us, where we saw the creature became a, or the creator became a creature. But it went more than that. The creator died in our place as we saw. Much greater than just becoming one of us, he died in our place. Notice the way John puts it here. In this is love, not that we love God, because the truth be known for most of us, we didn't want anything to do with God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a fancy big word, isn't it? Propitiation. What does it mean? Come with me to Petra for a moment and to some other civilizations to understand this word and and what this means to us today. We want to come here back to Petra. Remember last Saturday afternoon, I brought you here to Petra and we wandered around this this ancient city carved out of rock. But I want to take you to a place where we didn't go the other day. We want to come up these steps here because scholars believe, many scholars believe that possibly human beings were taken up these very steps, young children, because up on top we find the best preserved high place for sun worship where sacrifices were made up here on the top. When you get up to the top, you can see that the Nabataeans have carved some structures into the stone up the top. These large ceremonial places here for washing victims here filled with water and up here is the high place. And here many believe certainly animals were sacrificed, but as I say, some believe that humans were sacrificed up here And I just got a couple of Bedouin kids when I was up here and said, hey, you lie down in this altar for me where they killed the animal sacrifices, or the human beings. Imagine people sacrificing their own children, but it was very common in the ancient world. Don't miss tomorrow's program. I'll take you to Carthage. What the archaeologists have discovered there is unbelievable. And uh, we see... Uh, one of the reasons the Bible warned the Israelites to be very careful of the ways of the Canaanites. God mentioned, don't do those things. What, don't get into their practices because they were pretty bizarre, some of the things they were into. Well, they believe that up here... Human sacrifices were made. Many people believe that. Now, it's thought that perhaps the heart was taken from the body and placed in this receptacle here. And as the sun is rising up over the top of the mountains, the pulsating heart sends the blood down that little channel there and all in the worship of their pagan gods, sacrificing possibly up here children, but certainly in other places, no question about human sacrifice. You can come here to the to Mexico And I brought people here just a couple of years ago. The Mayans practiced human sacrifice. They even had a game of football where the winner got to be the human sacrifice to the gods who'd want to be a winner in that game. Uh, But... Chetsunitsa here we see this. Then you can come to just outside of Mexico to Teotihuacan. you got to be pretty smart to say that word. I certainly can't say it properly. I'm not Mexican. But in this place here one of the ancient Mexican civilizations they practiced human sacrifice. They discovered at the base of these pyramids here uh, the pyramid of the sun that little children were sacrificed to their gods to sort of Calm down the tempers of their angry gods. The Aztecs, right here in Mexico City at Tenochtitlan, here is where they practice human sacrifice on a mass scale, right here in the center of the Mexico City. For example, they tell us that in the reconstruction of their great pyramid of of Tenochtitlan back in 1487, not that long ago really in terms of ancient civilizations, here They practiced or had 84,000 people sacrificed in four days. Now, scholars have looked at that and said, hang on, how could you kill that many people so quickly as human sacrifices? Whatever it is, there was a lot of people were human sacrifices among the Aztecs. And uh, this was... This is what is called propitiation in the ancient world. Even the Incas did this, not up at Machu Picchu, but in other places they practiced human sacrifice as well to their gods. In the ancient world, human sacrifice was quite common, as you'll see tomorrow. It was common among the as the the Canaanites, and even the Israelites at times practiced human sacrifice, something God never asked them to do. So what is pagan propitiation or the propitiation of the ancient world? This word is picked up. By God, but he gives it a twist. But pagan propitiation meant this, a sacrifice to appease an angry God, a sacrifice to remove their sin, a sacrifice was was made to reconcile two parties back together again. Now, God picks up this word because it was understood in the ancient world, but he gives it a twist. He gives it the correct understanding. When we look at the way the biblical writers use this word, it's this. It is God who brings the sacrifice, not human beings. God is the one who brings the sacrifice. In fact, God is the sacrifice. He's the one who dies. And not only that, it's he's the one that reconciles. Man does not. God is the one who does the reconciling, not human beings. God took the initiative. And so he uses this term, but he gives it a beautiful meaning. He shows the true meaning of it. It is the fact that God has taken our place. He has become the sacrifice so that we can be brought close back to God's heart again. This is the only valid human sacrifice that the Bible recognizes, in fact. So John in the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, he writes these words. You are worthy to take the scroll. You'll understand this verse next week because I'm going to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is part of that great vision of John's. We'll come back here next week. He says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. Notice the word slain. You were sacrificed, in other words, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. You know, we might not understand, we might not like the idea of blood sacrifice, but God gave his own blood. He died for us. That was the only way, and the Bible portrays that very clearly. Now, the word redeemed is a marketplace word. It means somebody saw something was valuable and they paid an enormous price for that object. God, you see, in the word redeemed says you are valued. You and I are wanted. He wants us. Your husband may not think anything about you. He left you for some other woman. Your wife may have deserted you for some other man. Your parents may not care about you. Your children may never visit you. And you feel that nobody cares. Let me tell you, you're wrong. God values you. He paid an enormous price for every person on planet Earth. We are wanted. We are valued. We are loved by this great God. And it was at the cost of the death of God in human flesh. You see, what it's telling us it God values you and I more than his own life. He died where we should have been. What an amazing God. Now, you may think, what's the point of this? Well, John is pointing, up, trying to paint a picture for us in the Revelation as we get into these great prophecies that this is an enormous battle and at its heart there is a God of love who does care about us, who does value us, and we're not junk and we're not rubbish on this planet. We are important to him. Every single human being is valued and wanted by God. Now, there are two great principles in this, the biblical manuscripts concerning this issue. Number one is the principle that sin leads to to death, meaning eternal death. And second principle is righteousness or goodness leads to eternity. Notice how it's put this way by Paul in his book to the Romans. As sin reigned in death, even so might grace reign through righteousness to eternal life. There's the thing. Sin goes to death, righteousness leads to eternal life, and it comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord, he says. Now, this is what Calvary is all about. Calvary, when Jesus died on the cross, it was a great exchange that took place. You see, what happened was this. The Bible says that he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin. He never did anything wrong. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. As we accept his grace, we become the righteousness of God in him. So notice what takes place at Calvary now. This is what took place. He took our sin and therefore it caused his death. Now, if we accept him, we are accounted and treated as though we never did anything wrong. We're counted that way. And therefore, if we're counted as righteous, we have life because we have his righteousness. It's just like you go to the bank on Monday morning. You know, your bank accounts zero today, but you go into the bank on Monday morning and lo and behold, there's a thousand dollars there. Somebody has credited to your account. Well, in this situation, Christ has credited his righteousness to all those who accept him. So now we have life because we have righteousness. But because he takes our sin, therefore he dies. That's what took place at the cross of Calvary. That's why it was necessary. An exchange needed to take place so we could have life. Now, what do we have to do? You and I, what do we have to do? That's what God has done. He's paid this enormous price to make it possible. What do you and I have to do? Well, this brings us to the third thing about the gospel that John is portraying in Revelation. It's called the gospel of God's grace because it's free. It doesn't cost us. It cost God. Now, come with me to the the city of Ephesus. Probably some of us have been to Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the most amazing ancient sites in the Mediterranean region. You can see here the Library of Celsus on your right, an amazing building. And then we're sitting here taking this photo from the amphitheater on the left here. This amphitheater seated thousands of people. This is the place, by the way, if you ever read the book of Acts, where they cried out for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, Artemis, the great goddess of the Ephesians. It's mentioned in the Bible. Well, this is the place where Paul came, and Paul came sharing with people this very good news. And many people in Ephesus, they found a new way of life, a new peace and a hope for the future through what Paul shared with them from the gospel. And on one occasion, he wrote his friends here in Ephesus a letter. I want you to notice what he wrote in his letter. He said to these people, for by grace we have been saved, that's from destruction, through faith. And this not of ourselves, he said, it is the gift of God. Paul made it very plain that salvation is a gift from God. Eternal life is a gift. Now, how much does a gift cost? You imagine you wake up on Christmas morning and your wife or your husband or your kids bring you a nice gift and do you sweat on this all day and say, how much do I owe you for that? No, you don't sweat on that. A gift is a gift. You reach out your hand and you say, thank you. You don't have to pay anything for a gift. It's free. That's the point of a gift. It's totally free. You can't buy it. You cannot earn it. And that's the point that Paul is making. He underlines it here when he writes to his friends in Galatia in Turkey He says, a man is not justified. That means right before God by the works of the Lord. That means by human obedience to God's laws. That's not the way that makes us right. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified or be right with God. It's got nothing to do with what we do, the things we do. But it's got everything to do with what God has done himself. You know, it is on this point that all across the world, religions down through the ages and in our world today, we, we as human beings, we get a distortion here. I have been to many of the most sacred places on earth for various religions and I've watched people in various religions as sincere, honest people come to perform their ceremonies. I have been here to... Temples in places like Thailand and Bangkok and so on. And I've watched people, Buddhist people, devout people, offer incense to their gods, hoping and, and praying that by doing these things, they might find peace with their God and have eternity as well. I have been to many places like this one here, the great Sikh temple, the golden temple of Amritsar in, in, in India in the Punjab, and I've watched devout Sikh people as they worship their holy book, the Granth. Many of them feeling that if they make this pilgrimage here, this will help them to have eternity, to be right with their gods and so on. I have been to many countless mosques, and I love going to mosques because the Muslim people are very devout people, many of them praying five times a day, hoping and feeling that if they do this, and they take a pilgrimage to the the Hajj, the great pilgrimage to Mecca, that by doing this they may have peace with their with their God and be right with God and have eternity. Many, many devout, sincere people. I have been to India to watch the Hindu people in the take sacred baths in the Ganges River where you're find dead cows floating by and sometimes a human body surfaces because that's where the people are buried as well in the Hindu religion in the Ganges River and many of them take a a drink of the, 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 the Ganges water hoping and thinking that if they do these things that they will find peace with their gods very sincere people very devout people honest people some of them go to great lengths doing incredible things, putting stakes through their mouths and all sorts of things, hoping that by doing these things, their gods will see that they are sincere. I have watched the Jewish people who come from all over the world to the Western Wall, many of them feeling that if they make this pilgrimage and they come to the sacred wall of the Jewish people at the bottom of the Temple Mount and pray, that somehow this will find them be right with their God. I have been to many great cathedrals in our world today and watched many devout people that uh, come to visit these holy churches throughout Europe. Some of them climb these special stairs that you see in Rome where people believe these stairs were flown from, from Jerusalem to Rome by some angels, and this is the staircase of Pilate, they say. And many devout people feel that by climbing these steps on their knees, they will find peace with God and they'll be right with him, and somehow this will help them to have eternity. Very sincere people. You go to the Philippines and some of the people on around Easter and so on, they beat themselves to the blood flow. Some of them even hang on crosses feeling that if they do these things, the God will see that they are they are serious about this and he'll give them forgiveness and peace of mind and they'll have eternity. Many Christians today in our own country feel that if they just give a little more money or maybe they help a lot of people, maybe somehow this will find them peace with God and they'll be right with the God of heaven. But you know, all of this, sincere though it may be, and many good things among them, every one of these things, according to the Bible, is just illustrating the truth of the spotted leopard. What's the truth of the spotted leopard? Well, the Bible puts it this way. It's Jeremiah who wrote about the spotted leopard. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard it spots? Well, I don't think an Ethiopian man or a black man wants to become a white man. I think he's probably, most of them are quite happy with being black or brown. I think it's a lovely color. I know plenty of white people who want to become brown because they go on the beach all summer to try to tan up a little bit, don't they? But you know what I mean? We can't change our skin color. It's just the way it is. That's the point Isaiah, Jeremiah was making. He said, can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you or I do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It's impossible. We need help outside of ourselves. It's not going to work that way. That's why Paul summed up these words as he's talking about the same topic. He said, there is none righteous, no, not one for all have sinned. That's the past tense. And he says they fall short present tense of the glory, meaning the goodness and the character of God. We fall short of what we should be sin is not just what we do wrong it's not doing the things that we should have done the kindness we should have done that's what he means by the glory of God we fall short so the truth of the spotted leopard is this you and I we cannot change ourselves. we cannot save ourselves eternally it's like lifting yourself up by your shoestrings can you do it it's impossible and that's the point that he's making here as he's talking about eternity. We cannot, we need something outside of ourselves. And that's why he says the gift of eternal life, it is free. It comes by the grace of God. How do you receive the gift of eternal life? This is our part now. Number one, Jesus made it very plain, and so did the other Bible writers, that we must believe in Jesus Christ. You notice this is the way he put it. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now what does it mean to believe? Well, first of all, it means more than just a mental thing. It means a trusting. You see, when you fly, You trust the pilot I don't think too many of us get on the plane And we sweat about the pilot Can he fly this thing? What sort of a guy this? No, we usually get on the plane And we put on our earphones And listen to some music Or watch some TV or something, right? Or talk to our friends We don't worry at all We just trust the pilot By the way, if I got in the cockpit of the plane And you saw me go in there behind the controls You'd probably jump off the plane Because you know I can't fly the thing, right? It's about trust And that's the first idea about belief It's trusting and a good illustration of this was found in the great Blondin. You know, the man who walked across Niagara Falls with the on the tightrope with his balance pole and so on. And when he crossed uh, the Niagara Falls there on the tightrope, uh, people shouted, you know, Blondin, you're the greatest. You can do anything, man. You're the greatest. And on one occasion he said, do you think I could take a man on my shoulders across Niagara Falls? You think I could do it? No problem. You are the greatest. You can do it. Well, who will hop on my shoulders and nobody said anything? He could do it, but they didn't trust him to do it for them, you see. Now we must trust. We must trust. And that's the point of belief. But secondly, we must repent or turn from sin. Notice the way Jesus put it. He said, Jesus came to the city, the area of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. He was preaching the gospel. What we're talking about are the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. Now, repentance means a change of mind. We've been going in this direction, which we know deep down is the wrong direction. And now we decide we're going to go in a new direction. It's a change of mind, but it's more than that. It's to choose to turn away from that which is wrong or what the Bible calls sin and go in a new direction to make a conscious choice that's involved in repentance. Now, why is this the case? For a very simple reason. Let me put it up as Paul put it so succinctly to some friends who lived in Corinth. He said these words to his friends who lived in the city of Corinth, which was a port city. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous people are not going to be in the last empire, he's saying. Do not be deceived. Don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. Neither fornicators, that is those having sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, He goes on to say, nor adulterers, those who are married, who have sex with someone outside of the marriage relationship, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortionists will inherit the kingdom of God. But he then adds these words, and such were some of you. He says, some of you people were once among that group, but you repented, you changed, you turned and went in a new direction. That's why he says we need to repent because if we continue on knowing what is the wrong thing and continue on, we cannot have eternal life, he says. You see, it's about the monkey. I remember reading a story about a monkey who stole the peanuts of a hunter in Africa and the hunter got tired of this thing, the monkey taking his peanuts. So he thought, I'm going to set a trap for this monkey. So what he did, he he got a jar with a very narrow neck and a big bulge at the bottom, and he put some peanuts in the bottom of that flask. And then he got some real strong glue, I suppose Araldite or something, and he stuck that thing to the table in the first half of his tent, the kitchen half. And he went back into the second part where his bedroom was with his gun, and he waited. And true enough, in the middle of the night, he heard the scratchy, scratchy sound of the monkey coming for the peanuts. And when he got up groggily and peered through the curtain, there was the monkey with a fistful of peanuts in his hand, with his hand down the jar. Now, the monkey could have easily got away, just let go the peanuts, and he would have got his arm out. But he wanted those peanuts so much that he wouldn't let go. And of course, he couldn't pull his arm out. And he became monkey stew because of that very reason. Now, that's a bit like what we're talking about. Repentance means let go the peanuts of this world. (laughs) Let go and take hold of what God is saying. Take hold of Jesus the Christ. Let go of this world's peanuts. In other words, repent and believe. Put our trust in Jesus the Christ. You know, it's just like you and I are sailing on one of these cruiser ships. And say we fall off—not a very good thing to fall on a cruiser ship off a, fall, a cruiser ship in the middle of the night. You're dead meat, aren't you? But say you fall off, and fortunately, as you fell off, you managed to grab hold of something—a piece of wood or something—and so there you are, bobbing up and down in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, all alone. And suddenly, uh, uh, over the horizon, comes a ship. And peering over the edge of these shepherds, these sailors, and they throw you a lifeline. Now, right then and there, you need to do two things. You need to know for sure would well, believe that these guys want to save you. Well, that's pretty obvious. They wouldn't have thrown you the lifeline. But you've got to let go of the wood and grab hold of the lifeline, right? And that's a bit like it is with repentance. That's letting go of something that if you keep holding on to that, you'll never have security. You've got to let the thing go and grab hold of this thing and trust those guys who are going to haul in the rope and you on the end of it. It's a little bit like that with repentance and belief. Some people have asked me why I do these programs. I will show you this afternoon why I do these programs very clearly. I've had people ask me that recently. Why do you run these programs? How come you talk about archaeology? I'll show you for a very good reason. I was studying medicine at the West Australian University. And uh, as I started attending university, for the first time in my life, I began to wonder about the big questions in life. Is there a God? Is there anybody out there? That's a very important question to ask, isn't it? <laughs> we, we can't just assume there is, but... That came to my mind. Is there anybody out there? Is anybody in control? The big questions that come to us in life. When we get to death's door, what's beyond? Where have we come from? Where are we going? Is there hope beyond the grave? Is there something yet to come? So these questions began to play out in my mind and I began to wrestle with these questions as a university student. I went to, I started studying into some of, the discoveries of archaeology. And as I looked at the discoveries of archaeology, I began to realize that this book was historically true, as we shared last week. I began to realize that this is not fairy tales. This is not myths and legends. These people who talked about things got it right. I was just reading the other day. 70 people mentioned in the Bible, they've now found evidence for outside of the Bible in documents and in pieces of pottery and inscriptions and all sorts of things. They found good evidence for that and we've been sharing some of that. So I could see that at least this wasn't fairy tales. But then I started to look at some of the, disc- some of the prophecies concerning ancient civilizations. I could see that this book was trustworthy, but I needed more than that. As I looked at the prophecies of ancient civilizations, and we could have shared with you about the Assyrians and so on, the Egyptians, many prophecies in this book about these ancient civilizations, I realized that, hang on, there's something here. You see, there these prophecies were dependable. It's got a proven track record, as we said last week, a proven track record. And as I thought about it, I thought there must be a supernatural mind behind the writers who wrote these things. You cannot predict the future and get it right every time that somebody's telling you something from who knows the future, the end from the beginning. So I began to realize that this must be a book that's supernatural. And then one day I attended a seminar similar to the things we've been sharing here today. And at that time there were three things that I wanted in my life as a young man. I wanted to know that my past was forgiven because all of us have some skeletons in the closets that we're not proud of and some things that worry us and, and, and we're anxious about and we can't sleep properly because of stuff we've done. I wanted that knowledge that my past was done away with, forgiven, forgotten by God. I also wanted to know about the fact that I could have peace with God. I was restless. You see, it's only as we find peace with God that we really can sleep well at night. I'm talking really well. When we have a peace with the God who made us, I wanted that. I did not have that, but I began to search for that. I wanted to be right with God. And finally, I wanted to know that I could have eternal life. I I, I was looking for that. And as I was thinking about those things as a young man, I came to a program similar to this one, and I heard an incredible message that we've heard i heard that there was a god who did care about us and a god who loved us so much that he died like we talked about today and as i listened to that i thought i've heard that many times before i i've heard these sorts of things but for the first time in my life i realized i needed help i realized that if i should die i would not have eternity and as i listened it was it was as if i had been living like so many people had been living. That's how I've been, how I've been carrying on for the last two years. You see, I thought that when you want to find God, you do a bunch of good things. So for two years, I did many good things. I read this book. I prayed. I did good things for people, gave money, did as many good things as I thought. That's the way to find peace with God and have eternity. But you know what I found? It was like a, it was like a mirage on the desert outback. You've seen mirages. You go toward it, but you never get there. It's always beyond your reach. And that's how it is when we're trying to get to God with our own human efforts. We never can make it. Our humanity is not strong enough to get there. (laughs) It's it's beyond us. It's beyond our reach. That's what I discovered. And pretty soon I I I was miserable because you cannot live like that and hope that you can do good things to find peace with God. Well, fortunately, God hadn't given up on me. And so I came to that meeting and I heard these words. I heard, you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus the Christ took our guilt upon himself so that we could have life if we just put our trust in him. And it was as if I was standing on a cliff at that point. Here we are, we have two cliffs. And I was standing on one of them and I had to get to the other one. On this side where I was was sort of like not real happiness, but on the other side was eternity and peace of mind and hope for the future and all the good things that we really long for as human beings, meaning and purpose in life. And I didn't know how to get across. And as the man shared with us what God had done, it seemed that Jesus Christ was saying to you, there's only one way to get across that gap, and that's through my death. If you accept my death, you'll get to the other side. And I thought to myself right there in that in that program, well, what if it doesn't work? What if this idea of trusting what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago doesn't work? But fortunately, something said in my head, well, it's not working the way you're doing it. You're pretty miserable trying to do it by your own efforts. Why don't you just trust God? Why don't you take him at his word? I mean, you can see everything else is true in this book. All these prophecies, these things have been fulfilled, and the things that are in the Bible are historically accurate. Why don't you trust what he says about this thing? So right there, I said, God help. My life is a mess. I've tried so hard and I've failed so miserably. I, I can't do any more. Lord, God, I give up. I will trust what Jesus did. I will believe your word. You know, my friends, the moment I said, God, help, and I gave up on myself, that moment I knew God had taken my stuff from the past. Not only that, but I realized that God brought a new power into my life. As I mentioned last night, my father, when he did this, gave up his drink, gave up his stuff that he been, had been wrecking his life because there is a power in what Jesus did for us at Calvary as well. This was the way across the gap that I discovered, and it's in this book that we shared today. You see, Christ is the key to eternity. He's the center point of all the prophecies that we're going to get into. He's the heart of it. He's the way to eternal life. What's the point in knowing about prophecy if we can't deal with today and don't know how to make the future? Thank God there is a way. In fact, you know, John wrote these words to his friends. He said, this is John, the friend of Jesus. These things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. John doesn't want us to hope that we might have eternal life, or maybe we'll have eternal life. He wrote with such positiveness. He said, I want you to know that you have eternal life, not will have eternal life, but have it. You can begin it now, in other words. Then he painted a picture, as he wrote to his friends, as if we're in a law court. Now, you know, when you go to a court here in Sydney, what happens? Well, you go to the court. And you have witnesses and witnesses stand up and they say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we believe them. Well, perhaps we don't believe people today because they even swear when they swear on, when they even lie when they swear on the Bible or the Quran or whatever book that they're taking an oath on today in our law courts. They will still lie. But once upon a time when people took an oath, they meant what they said. So John says, listen, when we go to court, witnesses want to stand up. So let us watch. What he says, John says, if we receive the witness of men, if we believe a human being in a law court here in Sydney, the witness of God is greater. If God is the witness, surely we should believe him, in other words. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. So he says, God is the witness in this law court here. And he wants to say something. Well, now we believe a human being, surely we can believe God. But then he adds these words, he who does not... He who does not, he says, believe God has made him a liar. In other words, if we don't believe what God says in this law court, we're actually saying because we can't believe you, you're really a liar, God. That's a pretty serious business, isn't it? So don't don't call God a liar by not believing what he says, he says. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. So, okay, God wants to stand up in the witness box and he wants to say something. And we believe a human being, so okay, here's God in the witness box. God, what do you want to say in the witness box? Well, here's what he wants to say. This is the testimony of God, that is, that, he says, God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He or she who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Sorry, who does not have the son of God, does not have life. And God sits down. He said what he needs to say. He has said, listen, in this book, again and again and again, there are many historical statements and they're true. We saw that last week. We saw that this week. In this book, there are many prophecies. And we've been seeing again and again that these prophecies are reliable. They show that there's a divine mind behind this. Now that same God says, now I've got something to say. And that is what I want to say. Those who have the son they have life. Those who do not have the Son of God, they do not have life. That's how you have life. You have the Son. So how do you have the Son? I guess that's the question. And here's the final text that John gives us in his book, Revelation, a famous text. Behold, I stand at the door. That means the door of our life. And I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine or eat with him and he with me. This is a picture of Middle Eastern hospitality. They can't do it any better than the Middle East. So hospitable. He says, it's like that. When you open the door, I come in, and we're going to have food together, so to speak. We're going to have friendship. Here is the promise. If we hear the voice of God speaking to us open the door he comes in and when he comes he brings life and life eternal it's just that simple my friends the good news of what we've seen today in what called john calls the gospel let's go back where do we started we started with the human hunger for eternity john tells us the way to eternity in that angel who flies across the midnight heavens on this world bringing the final messages to planet earth and the first angel's message is this the gospel is the way to eternity. At a time when the kingdom is about to be set up with no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering, the gospel is the way. And the good news or the gospel is this. God loves us. He loves you. He has a plan for your life today. The good news is that God not only loves us and has a plan for us and for your life today, but the good news is that God is in control. Though the world may seem to be upside down sometimes and maybe your life seems to be upside down, God can bring order out of your chaos and the chaos of this planet, and he will do that. God loves us, he has a plan for our life, there's a reason for living, there's a purpose for living, and there's a hope for the future. And those of us who put our life in the hands of this God will have a future that is brighter than tomorrow. That's the good news that John wants to share with us as he launches into the final events of planet Earth in his Revelation. So what a tremendous message that comes to us from the pages of Revelation in this book. Now, when we get to these prophecies, and we're going to be getting into them in a big way from here on in, we're going to be seeing some incredible things of what is taking place on this planet. But make sure that, first of all, before we launch into that, that we know our hand is in the hand of God, like we talked about today, because He can see us through what's coming up in this world. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM.